Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins, and welcome back to the Boxing One podcast, episode 27. It's hard to believe these are kind of flying for us since we started the podcast here back in September. And we got our first three-time guest, CJ Marchesani, good friend of the program. CJ's joining us today to talk some deep, deep, deep sleepers, guys that may not even get drafted but we are willing to, to discuss today or maybe even go out on a limb and say that they belong on an NBA roster. CJ, how are you, my friend? Doing great. I appreciate you having me on. I'm honored to be the first three-time guest. That's awesome news. I didn't know that coming in. Well, anybody who wears a, an Expos, is that an Expos hat you got on? Yeah. Anybody yeah. who wears an Expos hat onto the pod is uh, instantly gaining credibility in my book. I, uh, I don't have the drip that you do. But I, I'm certainly envious and it brightened my day to be thinking about Jose Vidro and Vladimir Guerrero. I didn't think I'd have that today. Happy to uh, give you a reason to reminisce a little bit. Yeah. So for everybody who's listening right now, we're at the point in the draft cycle where the official early entrant list has come out and there are well over 200 names on it. Yep. I expect there to be plenty of players who withdraw, go back to school that list ends up changing and dropping down a little bit. But at the end of the day, we're at a, a place right now where there are so many NBA caliber talents in only 60 draftable positions each year to the point where there are, are plenty of guys that we can bet on and say, he may not get drafted or may not be a priority to go in the top 45, but he's that one guy that I think is going to carve out an NBA career. And I guess the perfect example of that this year was a guy like Jose Alvarado for the New Orleans Pelicans, who really worked incredibly hard through training camp and should have seen that coming based on how he played at Georgia Tech, but earned his way not just onto an NBA roster, but getting consistent minutes on a playoff team from day one. So what CJ and I are going to do is look at 10 different candidates of guys who are mostly upperclassmen, but maybe one or two younger guys mixed in there who have a, a tremendous amount of upside. As these are guys who can come in right away, make an impact and or outperform a late round draft position slash undrafted two-way type of feel and, and just bust their way through training camp to get a bit. And CJ, the reason you're the perfect guest to have on here is not just because of your depth of knowledge of the, the 2022 NBA draft class, but you asked a question on Twitter a couple of days ago about who are some kind of later first round, early second round guys that can come in be really solid on the help defensive end from day one and earn their way into a, a rotation right away. And I think that that's the right way to attack a lot of this. I don't know if we're going to focus just on those defenders or if we're going to be a little bit more broad in just the readiness of their skill to come in and make an NBA roster from day one. But I don't think that there's a coincidence that the 10 guys we're going to discuss are a little bit older. So with that said, CJ, before we get going, anything you want to add contextually to the conversation? Yeah, um, other than I think that, that I, I was looking through the list that we're going to talk about, and I think it is going to be a bit of an interesting philosophy, right? Because there's a couple different types of guys. We have like the backup point guard types, the versatile wing types, and a couple like bigger guys. And I think I'm never going to get on anybody for wanting to take somebody beyond 50. You know, at that point, it's just kind of your flavor of whatever your team needs um, or whatever you think you want to develop. But I think a decent amount of this is going to be like philosophy based as much as um, as much as scouting based. All right. So let's get on our nerd glasses. Let's dive all the way into the minutia here. The deep, deep, deep cuts of the 2022 NBA draft class with CJ Marchesani player. Number one 
one of my personal favorites and a guy that I'm incredibly high on and, and actually think I'm going to wind up having a top 40 grade on him is Colin Gillespie out of Villanova. Five-year point guard, really good player, going to come into the NBA and, as far as I can tell, be able to run an offense. Shot 41.5% from three this year, led this, leads this draft class in free throw percentage, being above 90%. Two-to-one assist-to-turnover ratio, really strong body, and as anybody from Villanova comes out, fundamentally sound. That's the key to my heart. CJ, what's, where are you at right now uh, from one Philly guy to another on Colin Gillespie? Yeah, I am not quite as high as you on Gillespie, but I think he is my favorite of the five-year point guards that we're going to run through today. Um, since he's your dude, I'll, I'll let you do the introduction for all of that stuff. But I do think that one of the things that you need to hang your hat on, if you're going to be that five-year guy, which it's tough to break into the league, it's even tougher to break into a draft spot as a fifth-year senior, but I think an elite skill um, along with the defensive prowess that he brings is something that's super helpful. And Gillespie is a monster three-point shooter. So in a, I think the theme with a lot of these point guards is that the league is kind of moving further and further away from just handing the ball over to a backup point guard for the bench minutes. A lot of that is like staggered lineups and stars still running with bench units and stuff like that. So your backup point guard candidates need to be able to kick over off the ball. And out of all of these guys, I think Gillespie is the best bet to do that because, like you said, he was a, a little over 41% from three this year on over 10, over 13 attempts for 100 possessions and also shot 90% from the free throw line. So that's like you can take it to the bank. He's going to be an elite shooter kind of numbers, which gives me a little bit more confidence than some of these other guys. Yeah, I think that's exactly the right pitch for him. And again, maturity, being able to come in from day one, do a lot of those leadership things where we have this classic vision of a point guard as being ball in my hands, dribble it up the court, point at everybody and organize them. Like the game isn't necessarily played like that as much anymore. So the ability to lead in other ways, to be a really hard worker, to be a, for lack of a better term, a culture guy, that matters for being the 14th, 15th guy on a roster. And then how you play, how you blend and mix next to star players is what ends up getting you to crack that top 10. So you're playing on a nightly basis. And that's where I'm in full agreement. The fact that he can shoot it really well, he's great off movement. He's really good with his kind of pump fake one step, one sidestep move. Those are all really functional to the NBA where he's going to be a really good off ball player, but the two to one assist to turnover ratio, just how fundamentally sound he is when he attacks the basket. I think he makes great decisions. I, I'm sold on him on the offensive end. What's your thought defensively? I, I don't know if there's a ton of versatility there, but do yeah. you think he can come in and, and have a positive impact at the NBA level? I don't think he's a plus defender at the NBA level. I think he's probably closer to serviceable. My biggest concern with him is the athleticism. I, I think it's that's not unfair to say. If you're, if you're um, talking about Colin Gillespie, it's, is he athletic enough to stick on an NBA floor? He had zero dunks um, last year which is a you know, little stat indicator for NBA athleticism. And not that guys that can't or that don't dunk can't make the league because we see it over and over again. But when we're talking about fringes of a roster and what's going to keep you along, I, I think if he were slightly more athletic, I'd have a, a little bit more confidence of him being like a plus defender at his possession, at his position. And, and B, I just think that that may be the thing that, if there's a thing that holds him back from being that third point guard on a roster, it might be the athleticism um, because on the offensive side, 
if he's your like off ball point guard and you're running him around screens and all of this stuff, he's a weapon level shooter. So it's just going to come down to when they run you off the line, can he make someone pay at the rim? Is he going to be able to consistently play at the rim because teams are going to take away the three point shot? Yep. Yeah. I, I'm, I say this over and over again, that I'm not a huge fan of player comparisons yet. I always do that as a preface to making a player comparison. So go ahead and play the hypocrite card on me there. But I think there's a little bit of Peyton Pritchardy stuff to his game. Um, just with how Boston uses him, like he's very rarely the dribble up and initiate the Celtics offense type of guy, but being a threat from three and then Gillespie, what he lacks in athleticism, I think he makes up for in competitiveness. And that's why I'm willing to bet on a guy like him. Uh, certainly understand the indicators and, and why a lot of NBA teams would rather take an athletic guy. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm not sure if Gillespie even gets drafted, but he becomes a priority two-way or training camp invitee because of how competitive he is, what he can do for your offense. And even if you draft a younger guy, he's going to come in from day one and have more polish, be ready to push those guys right at the outset. So to me, Gillespie is like the most priority 61st pick in a draft that you can ever really get. Yeah. I, again, I'm, I definitely wouldn't argue any of that. I probably not, I'm definitely a little bit lower on him than you are. Um, but I can see why you would get excited. I think his leadership qualities are, are there that Villanova point guard is kind of like a, it's like a fixture, right? That Jay Wright point guard always is thinking the game and once one, two steps ahead of guys and when you can shoot like that and you're not like he's six, three, he's not miniature. He's going to be big enough to hold his own. Um, I think he definitely has a chance. And I don't think that he will, I like you're talking about with Pritchard. I don't think he's a NBA level point guard, but if he's playing with one of those bigger initiators, defending point guards and kicking off the ball shooting, I don't see a reason why he can't fight his way onto a roster. Yeah. I think that's uh, I think that's fair to, to point out as well. We'll move on to player number two here, who draft Twitter is starting to really embrace in a lot of different ways. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on him. Kevin McCuller from Texas Tech. He has declared for the draft, but is still weighing a couple options if he returns. I believe he narrowed his list down to Gonzaga or Kansas. So a highly coveted uh, college player. Three and D without the three right now is kind of the best way to really describe how I would project McCuller at the next level. But I'm also not a guy that's been incredibly high on him. I'm going to have to go back and, and dive into the tape more to see if I'm missing the trend that seems to be really boosting him up draft boards. Where are you at on McCuller? If, if McCuller is boosting his way up draft boards right now, I like to think that I'm driving the train. Okay. Um, I, if you follow me, I've been very, very high on McCuller all year last year I, I think he's a really great basketball player and to the point where um and this is you know personal opinion we're not going to agree on this but I don't think I think he's above this list quite honestly I'm having trouble figuring out why he's not a top 45-ish lock guy and it starts every conversation with his starts on the defensive end of course he is a like a processing genius in team defense he is excellent at rotations jumps, passing lanes, all of that. We don't need to discuss the defense because it's like a, you, you know, that's what Kevin is bringing to the table. Really good. Yeah. Really, really good. He was a, um, a semi, a national semifinalist for defensive player of the year in college this year. Um, one of two wings to get to that far. It, look, the defense is there. The reason why I think 
he should be a top 45 pick is paired with that defense. He's six foot seven with point guard skills, not great point guard skills. He's not going to be an NBA point guard, but he can handle the ball. He can pass the ball. And I think he's a better shooter than he gives, gets credit for. Last year at Texas Tech, he shot 35% from three on catch and shoots. Perfectly respectable. He shot over 40% on open catch and shoot shots. I think a lot of his three-point percentage uh, questions are brought up by the fact that he took a decent amount of pull-up threes, which is usually a pretty good indicator for three-point shooting. But it drug down his three-point percentage because he doesn't really hit those. He was forced into those shots by a really ugly Texas Tech offense. And I, I do think that he's going to be a passable shooter at the NBA level. But beyond that, those point guard skills translate really well to his NBA role, which is going to be attacking closeouts and stuff like that. He's almost overqualified for that role. And in a time where versatility and switchability is like really, really valuable to the NBA, it's kind of crazy to me that we have six foot seven guard one through four point guard in quotes point guard that's going to kick over to the wing that is being talked about like undrafted. So that's, I am probably as high on Kevin McCullough as anyone you'll find. So take whatever I'm saying with a grain of salt if you want to, but I like to think that I have also done the most work on Kevin McCullough out of anybody. So I, I do think that he's an NBA player and a like eight year NBA player. Yeah. Interesting. So with McCullough, I know the, the defense is, is the selling point here on ball and versatility wise where's the the gap between him and maybe a Herb Jones out of Alabama, both when they were coming out of the draft or what their role can be in the NBA? Yeah. I mean, he's not, he's not quite as big as Herb. He's, he's more, I've been calling him the, the guard version of Herb, even though he's six, 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 seven, but it's there. If Herb's one, a maybe Kevin's one B, but they're at the same level. He, he has been that guy for three years for Texas tech, the, the, the offense is now coming along more that he's been given more responsibility. Um, but the defense is unquestionable. I, I don't think that there's another prospect in, you know, outside of the top 10 guys that is as good of a perimeter defender as color is that has like any sort of offensive value. Like think Caleb McConnell for Rutgers level defense, except he's not a good enough offensive prospect to make it worth. I think that McCuller is. I, I, I love Caleb McConnell's defense too, which is why yeah. that always pains me. Um, so the reason I ask about the Herb Jones thing is there are a lot of revisionists right now who want to rewrite the 2021 NBA draft and include him as a lottery guy. I think that where I missed on Herb was really understanding the importance of the versatility and impact of his defense, mm -hmm. that the combination of those two skills should just be able to play him on the floor but he's shooting the ball even now better than he did in his final year at Alabama. He is much more comfortable with the ball in his hands at kind of slicing through defenses and being creative than I thought that he was necessarily going to be. Like there were misses that a lot of us made on the Herb mm -hmm. Jones stuff, but even if we got a ton of those right, this is time for the philosophy question, right? If a guy's hang on his hat skill is going to be help defense and versatility, how high do you then draft him? And then with that ceiling already in place, doesn't that already drop somebody down if they have some questionable offensive stuff? Like for McCuller, uh, I get what you're saying about the catch and shoot stuff. He still barely shot 31% from three-point mm -hmm. range this year. 
I don't think that he's going to be a guy that plays with the ball in his hands, even though 4.1 assists per 40 minutes is an impressive number for a guy of his size. I don't know what to do with him offensively. And I don't know if I draft in the top 35 for a guy who's going to be more of a help defensive connector piece, like help me make sense of the range. If he doesn't necessarily end up being a really good shooter. I think that, First of all, on the help defense connector piece thing, because I think that that's important. I think that that is McCullers like special genius, right? He's a help defense phenom, but it's something that always clicked with Ben Simmons for me. And somebody, I want to say Seth part now, somebody said this and it like hit a light bulb off in my head that Ben is a phenomenal help defender, but he was the best on ball defender on the Sixers. So a lot of the time, he, he was the on-ball guy, right? On the majority of NBA floors he plays on, Kevin is going to be a brilliant team defender because that's who he is, but he's also going to be the best on-ball defender on the perimeter that they have. So I think the defensive versatility that you're talking about with her, the ability to kick on-ball and off-ball and not really take that step down, I think is also there with McCuller. As for where you take that, I'm a two-way kind of guy. There are a lot of people that their draft philosophy is like the game is about a bucket. You know, you draft the bucket and then you work from there. I value size, versatility, connectivity, all of that stuff. That's very high in my scouting philosophy. So I don't have a ceiling on that. I think that Kevin obviously is not going to get drafted in the top 20. That's out of the question at this point, like just being realistic. But where would I draft him? Knowing that, I would have no problem taking him in the 30s, in the early 30s or anything like that, knowing that at a certain point, it's just about NBA players, right? There's only a certain amount of NBA players in any particular draft class that are going to be there for five, six years. And the way you earn your stripes, going back to, to what we were talking about at the beginning, is by making an immediate impact. NBA teams aren't patient. And I think McCullough is going to be able to get on the floor right away because coaches aren't going to have to live with the quote unquote rookie mistakes on the defensive end because he's so far ahead there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why he's really one guy that we're bringing up in the, uh, in the piece here is because I think he's more primed to make an instant impact because of that help defense, you know, the, the, it goes back to the tweet that you made, right. And why we're end up having this conversation guys Mm -hmm. who can come in, and guard right away, prove that they can play through some of their offensive mistakes and get minutes on the floor. And, and that's important in the context of knowing how much to value McCuller and what different teams might be fits for him if you get beyond that 35 threshold and he's still on the board. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find him interesting. And the next guy that we're going to talk about is a very drastically different type of player. Um, and I'm curious to see philosophically which one we value in different ways. And it's Darion Sebron out of NC State. If we're thinking of that one hang your hat on it type of skill, and then the belief that if you have athletic tools, you can develop everything else out of there. Darion Sebron has a hang your hat on it type of skill. And that's, he is a walking paint touch. When the guy wants to, he's about six, seven, six, eight, gets downhill so easily, very good with the ball in his hands can go either direction off the drive. 
he gets to the free throw line like nobody's business 50 percent free throw rate which is ridiculously high one of the best in this class 19.4 points 9.1 rebounds positive assist to turnover ratio has all of the tools as a lanky athletic wing to be a positive defender his achilles heel is that he doesn't necessarily shoot it both on ball and off ball very little pull-up range that's both in mid-range and a three slower shot in that regard but the raw tools that he has at his size to handle and get into the paint are really intriguing to me. Two questions for you then, CJ. One, where are you at in Sebron in terms of, kind of trying to slot him in this class? And two, am I crazy for thinking that if you're drafting in that 45 to 60 range or prioritizing somebody with a two-way, that you go after somebody with a raw amount of athletic skill, but a hang your hat on something talent where at the very least, you know that they can develop into X, Y, or Z when the rest of the game comes around. I, I think that I am lower on Sebron than the majority of scouts. And I think a lot of that is just thinking translation, if that makes sense. I don't disagree with you that he can get into the paint whenever he wants, but we're going to be talking philosophy all night. One of my philosophies is I slightly downgrade guys that win in, at the college level on strength, especially if they're older than everyone else. I think that Sebron is redshirt sophomore, quote unquote. But if we're going to stick with the McCullough comparison, he's actually a year older than Kevin is. He's the age of a true senior. He's, he's, four, he's in his fourth year out of high school. So – a lot of his wins are on strength A. And B, I don't know what his downhill gravity, if you will, translates to at the NBA level. I don't think he's going to have the ball in his hands a lot because he doesn't have that. He's not a bad passer, but he is very much not an NBA caliber initiator by any means. So a lot of his paint touches are going to come attacking closeouts and getting downhill. And at this point, if I were a NBA defense, I would guard him six feet away and say, go ahead and shoot it. Because I don't think that he can. I, I think we were talking about you were like skeptical on McCullough shot, because I think that they're actually two very good compare contrast. Like it's a good compare contrast tool. We were skeptical on McCullough shot, but he was 31% on six attempts per 100 possessions. And we, the little thing where he took a lot of shots off the dribble. So things are a little off balance. He was a 35% three-point shooter in the half-court period um, without pull-ups. Sebron has the, at NC State took two threes per 100 possessions and made 25%. These are drastically different shooting prospects. And even beyond that, he doesn't have any of that connective tissue stuff that I value highly. So if I'm kicking him off the ball, I don't see him doing enough team stuff. The, the little things that I value, the connectivity, the defense, any of that to value him over maybe more versatile guys, even if his one elite skill is as good as anybody else's elite skill in the draft. Yeah, I, and I think that's completely fair. So the, the compare and contrast is really what do you value more, right? Is it a guy like Kevin McCuller who is that connective tissue, does a lot of those little things, 
And we're going to bet on the shooting being real because we've seen in different glimpses and samples that he can be effective on catch and shoot shots from three. Or do you value a guy who, if he just had a jump shot and defenses had to come out and guard him a little bit more, can turn into somebody that you can play through a little bit more. And again, no disrespect to Kevin McCuller. I don't know if I ever see him being a really good offensive piece that a team can play through. I think he's a smart passer. Like you said, good decisions when he attacks closeouts and can turn into a solid shooter someday. But if Sebron does develop something of a shot, is he either a really good on-ball creator because of how good he is off the dribble, his size, his length to get in the lane, or do you think there's enough athletically there to turn him into a switchable, switchable on-ball versatile defender who can come down on the other end of the floor and just hit catch and shoot sh- shots, right? And, and that's not yeah. necessarily – you have to be able to weigh how much do I believe he'll get to that level. And I'm not so sure I'm sold on the fact that Sebron will. But I certainly recognize the upside for if he ends up getting a, a three-point jumper consistently – like he's got so many other raw skills that there's a definite high quality NBA player in there. Yeah. I think, I think that's probably our disagreement. And I think that you're in the majority there. I think I'm definitely in the minority from people that have talked to. I give a lot of leash to guys that are maybe a three point shot away because NBA, the NBA has shown that they're very good at developing a, average three-point shooter you know when guys have a certain amount of touch and more importantly a willingness to get shots up they have shown that they can work with the willingness to get shots up to get them a little under league average nobody's a terrible shooter at the guard position anyway shooting coaches are very i don't think that sebron is a shot away i don't i don't love his iq i don't love his basketball decision making I don't love his game processing. And for all of that reasons, I think a jump shot would make him a better prospect without a doubt, but no argument there whatsoever. But I don't think he's a, there's a lot of guys that we could talk about being a three point shot away from being an impact player. And I think that we would probably disagree in that. I don't think Sebron is a shot away from being an impact player. Sure. No, uh, again, I can understand that one. Like, I keep going back and forth and he's not on our list. We'll talk about today. Travion Williams for Purdue. Like he's Mm -hmm. a a three point shot away from being such a well-rounded offensive player that I'd be willing to take him despite some of his flaws. I don't know if I'm there on Sebron yet, but he's one of those guys where if we're going through workouts and we start to see some mechanical changes and all it takes is one team to fall in Mm -hmm. love with you and say, man, we had him for a workout. He actually shot the leather off the ball. I can understand why he ends up being a, you know, 35 to 50 type of draft pick coming out in this draft. Absolutely. That wouldn't shock me at all, especially with the rim pressure that he's able to get. It's truly one of the most impressive skills in the class is his collegiate rim pressure. It's just not something that I buy all the way. So I, I think that he will get drafted. I think that he will get drafted. I think that he will probably be valued higher than I would value him. But I, for the reasons that I went through, I'm a little bit lower on him than most people. Well, let's talk about somebody that you are a little bit higher on or (laughs) that you you brought to the table in this conversation. That's Josiah Jordan-James out of Tennessee. I'm just going to turn the floor over to you, CJ. Talk us through the second coming of JJJ. Yeah, I, Josiah Jordan-James has been another one of my favorites for a couple of years. 
and he he's he is not quite as dynamic and versatile as guys that I normally am all in for. I think that he is a wickedly good perimeter defender, just excellent at event creating, but also very um, fundamentally sound. I will, I would want to slot him in every one of my defensive sets and let him go to work. The question mark with him, like we said, is the shot. But like I kind of alluded to last time, a big hurdle for projecting shot is volume. And he takes, a, he took 11 threes per hundred attempts or per hundred possessions last year. And that is a theme. He took six threes per hundred possessions his freshman year, eight threes per hundred possessions his sophomore year. And he still only makes them at a 33% clip, but he is a objectively good floor spacer because he's very willing to get him up. I'll, I'll take your little, I don't like to do player comps, but I think that there's a relatively clean one for JJJ and it is, early career Robert Covington. He, it's tough to comp anyone to the defensive genius of Covington because off ball, he's another one of those super processors off the ball. But Josiah is a phenomenal defender and he gets shots up like um, Covington does in that same way. He doesn't mind the contest. He doesn't mind hand in his face. He is a good volume shooter, whether they're going in or not. And I see so many similarities between the two of them, including their weaknesses. James is, Josiah Jordan James is not particularly dynamic. He doesn't have any of those ball on the floor stuff that I think will translate to the NBA level. But if I were in an offense that were a little bit closer to heliocentric, whether that be with one or two guys, like those Rockets, those Harden Rockets teams, or, you know, just those less motion offenses, offenses that ask guys to stand in the corner, he is high on my second round priority undrafted free agent list because I think he requires a perfect, but not a perfect, a proper team fit. There's a lot of team offenses that I think put him in bad spots, but if his offensive roles stand in the corner in space, I think he's going to be really good at it. It's an interesting one because for me, there are a lot of guys who early on in their college careers, we have our eye on. They don't necessarily play well or the numbers and the box score stuff doesn't pop and they get slowly moved down your boards, your priority list to continue mm -hmm. to watch. And he was kind of one of them. Uh, you know, I have not done a, a ton of Tennessee watching this year. So that's one of the reasons I'm going to let you take the lead on this entire segment with him is because I just I haven't watched enough Tennessee or, or Josiah to, to really weigh in on this. There's only so many hours in a day, man. Only so many hours in the day. But the, the one thing that I keep coming back to and why right now he's currently not in kind of our top 100 or 150 is I haven't seen enough. And what I have seen, he hasn't necessarily popped. He's one of those guys where if you're watching for him and trying to evaluate the little nuances that he brings to the table, I think he pops out a little bit more, but because he doesn't do much with the ball in his hands offensively, he's just, Oh yeah, he made a shot. Like he's probably hovering around that 32 to 35% range. And he's been there the last couple of years in college, but you know, it's not the sexiest pick by any means, unless you can really spend the time diving in the minutia and saying, okay, this is exactly what he gives us. And I think the Covington comparison or pitch for how he earns his way onto a roster is definitely an appropriate one. Yeah, he, yeah, I think that he's just a guy that day one defends, which is something that I'm very interested in. He's got the size. He, he defends very, very well. Uh, another one of those top three 
perimeter defenders in the class. Uh, him and McCullough are, have a lot of similarities on that end. I think Jordan James probably has the longer wingspan. He's got the better athletic tools. And I think that McCullough is probably better above the shoulders. He's, he's got that like processing genius, but they two sides of the same coin, if you will. And on offense, he's just a, like if a coach needs to buy floor spacing, right? Like I don't have a lot of money. I can't, I can't get a, uh, I, I, I can't sacrifice the defense, which is I think his sell. He brings floor spacing without sacrificing the defense. And he's not dynamic. He's the fifth star. He's the fifth offensive guy on any floor, but he can stand there and get shots up. No problem. Contest, no contest, whatever you need him to do. Yep. And outside of a Rick Barnes motion scheme, when it becomes a little bit more simple and you can say, Hey, this is what you're working on every day. When you come into our gym to make sure you impact our team on the offensive end, I think that shooting number may even go up. So, all right. We got to go to one more guy here um, that I am really interested in. This may be a callback to the Gillespie segment at the very beginning, but we're going to point guards and this guy is getting my annual first annual uh jose alvarado sticker of grit and uh, that's gonna be jacob gilliard out of richmond what if i told you and I, i've just been re-watching entourage as i fall asleep so i'm doing my bob ryan impression right now but what if i told you you could get a guy who averages three steals per 40 minutes leads this draft class and assist to turnover ratio makes 30 36 percent of his threes and 86 percent of his free throws and has a very low turnover rate for being a point guard. Is that something you might be interested in? I would have to ask you how tall is he? And that's <laughs> where we always come back to with Gilliard is, yeah. you know, sometimes there's only so many spots you can take on an NBA roster or on an NBA floor for undersized point guards. The one thing with Gilliard that I know he's going to be able to give is fight on the defensive end. This is a guy who has probably the quickest hands that I've seen at the college basketball level over the last couple of years. Really, really pesky on ball, unafraid to get into the guy. And he turns that into turnovers. And that allows him to get out a little bit more in the open floor. What I think translates better than anything for a guy like Gilliard to the NBA is the assist to turnover ratio and the ability to score from three. I think that he hits those analytically pleasant spots where he can come in and be a competitive third string point guard that you may be able to get minutes out of on day one. Do I think Gilliard is a top 60 guy? No, I don't. And I, I have him right now at 99 on our board. I'm probably going to adjust and move him up a little bit higher, get him closer to the seventies and, and maybe, you know, high eighties might be a little bit more appropriate for where he comes in. But if there's two things that I've learned from either watching Alvarado or just the last couple of years, it's one, don't bet against those son of a bitch competitors. And I think that the Gilliard is definitely one of them. And B, you know, size is not going to be as impactful if you have a definitive way to make up for it. And the amount of pressure that he can apply on the perimeter gives me a little bit of hope that, you know, maybe he's more of a Javon Carter. Maybe he's a little bit more of, of a Jose Alvarado who's just going to pick you up in the full court and harass you for a few minutes and make your life a living hell. There's value in that. And if he can come in and be a positive on the offensive end on top of that, I think that he's definitely going to find his way onto an NBA roster. Yeah, I think that I, I'm not, I don't disagree um, with any of the evaluation. Uh, I don't even disagree with the placement. I think 80s is perfectly fair. I don't have any issue with that. What I do 
think, and I'm just draft tenants and BS today with crazy quotes, but another thing that I really want to make sure that I'm doing that I have made mistakes on before is not chasing outliers, right? I think that, I think that I don't want to look for the next Jose Alvarado because he is so crazy special at what he does and the vast majority of guys in his role and at his size don't make it. And if they do make it, they don't provide excess value. The reason that we have four of them on just this list of 10 is that they undersized point guards that can run an offense and pester you on defense is not a role that you can get very much excess value from. If I am a team drafting, I would rather use my draft spots on something that could provide that excess value, like a rotation wing or something like that in those spots or a shooting guard or, or power guard or any of that kind of stuff. But that being said, I like Gilliard, the player. I think he's probably, I think he's probably sub NBA caliber. And I think you probably think he's probably sub NBA caliber too, because you have him in your eighties. And I have, would have no doubts that he's going to be a 10 year G league point guard or make whatever kind of money he wants overseas. Cause he's a good basketball player. I think, I mean, obviously he's a, a thief, great steel guy, good shooter. I would trust him to run a G league offense. I just don't think that there's much value there. I would rather use my two ways to have value adds, but if you want to give him a E10 and, or even a two way and get him to run your G league team, like I'm cool with it. I don't have any issue with him as a basketball player. I more have an issue with him just from like a strategy uh, theory point of view, game theory point of view that I would rather take bigger swings there, even if it's on worse players, because he's a very good basketball player. He's just undersized point guard. He's much more of a finished product than a lot of guys that you probably should be looking at to take in the fifties or sixties. And even with some priority two-way deals, right. But if you're looking at filling out your roster for summer league for training camp, and you just want one MF -er to come in here and make you better, even if he's only there for two weeks, Gilliard's that guy. And if you're going to at least get your foot in the door, it's a coin flip at that point, whether you can earn yourself into something a little bit larger. And that's where I'm, I'm willing to say like Jacob Gilliard is going to play somewhere in the NBA next year. I don't know how large of a role. I don't know what type of team or system is going to be willing to take a chance on him, but he's going to make a positive impact in some sort of way. Yeah. He's a feisty, aggressive guy. He's a guy that I don't want to see in workouts. That's for sure. You know, if I, if I'm a point guard prospect, I don't want to, I don't want to be looking the other way and see him. He's a guy that'll look good at the combine scrimmage or the G League combine scrimmage, wherever he goes, because he's a veteran guy that likes the ball in his hand. I just think, end of the day, he's probably closer to like that quad A point guard than he is impact guy in the league, which is fine. That's better than the vast majority of basketball players in the world. Yeah, some agent is going to cost like Kennedy Chandler or Jan Montero or somebody else like a lot of money by having their player go to a workout where Jacob Gilliard is and having him just be able to do nothing all day. Yeah, Montero should avoid those, like Gilliard, like the play, any of those guys. Like, <laughs> no, not interested, sorry. I'm five years younger than you are. I'm not interested. Well, I want to stick on the defensive end here, where steals are, I think, a pretty good indicator of impact at point of attack for a guy like Gilliard, just because he had such quick hands. 
I'm a, I'm a big believer in stocks as being a, a pretty good indicator, right? Steals plus blocks of defensive aptitude. And I recently did a study just going back for an article I was writing a couple of weeks ago on the impact of stocks for wing players, right? Because they're not necessarily always point of attack defenders who can pick up more steals. They're not going to be rim protectors or interior presences who pick up a lot of blocks. And what I found is that there's a really strong correlation between the best NBA defenders right now and having really high stocks rates in college when they were wings. So looking at the list, there's actually one guy here who has per 40 minutes better stock rates than Jeremy Sohan, Keon Ellis, Jake LaRavia, even Caleb McConnell, Marjan Bochamp, Dalen Terry, Kevin McCuller, like guys that we've talked about as really good wing defenders. And that guy's Matthew Meyer out of Baylor. Um, Really amazing to me that he ended up with 3.6 stocks per 40 minutes, 2.2 steals, 1.4 blocks. He does so while being a good three-point shooter. This year was a step backwards in that category, barely above 32%. But a year ago at this time, he was actually testing the waters and being talked about in many outlets, even on The Athletic, as a guy that might be able to creep into the top 35 or 40. He's a year older now. I don't think that that does him a lot of help in getting him drafted. But what I've always loved about Matthew Meyer's game is how simple he is at attacking closeouts. And if we're talking about those low volume players, we want a guy who's a really good shooter, who can attack closeouts and make good decisions, who's fundamentally sound, doesn't make mistakes, and makes an impact on the defensive end. And all of the analytics save the dip in three-point shooting this year that we saw I think Meyer tests out incredibly well as being a great low volume, high impact type of wing in the NBA. And I think he's that one guy that just consistently is getting overlooked right now. Yeah. I, you know, versatile wings, man. I mean, I think that he is a good defender. I, he's probably going to end up, if not in my top 60, right on the outskirts of it. I think he's draftable. Um, He's definitely a guy, if I could get him on a two way, I'd be happy to do it more than that. I don't care about the step back in three-point percentage, even a little bit. Wouldn't think twice about it because got up 10 per 100 possessions. If I can get a guy that's getting up 10 threes per 100 possessions and they're hitting them even at a borderline rate, I feel perfectly fine to project that. But beyond that, on catch-and-shoot threes this year, unguarded, he, he took 33, 34 of them, completely unguarded, and made 26%. Blind random variants. You know, he's a good shooter. He missed his open ones this year. He'll make them next year, or he won't. or And then he'll make them in two years. You know, it's not three-point shooting at the individual season level carries a lot of variants. We know he's a better shooter than that, and I don't care about the shot even remotely because I very much believe he's going to shoot at the next level. So when we get past that, like you said, he's a smooth attacker of closeouts. All the guys that we're talking about in this range – do not project to be top three, four even options on offense when they're there. But he's a guy that you know is going to knock down shots. He's big and mobile, has a little bit of positional versatility on defense. He could probably go three, four. He's not like a one position defender. He could probably slide a little bit. I don't think he is going to be, I think he's a better off ball defender than on ball defender, but I also don't think he's going to be 
taken advantage of at the next level. I think he's big and mobile enough that he's probably not like an automatic bucket when you get him on a switch. So yeah, he, out of these guys on this list, he is higher to me than most. Also because of the reward, if he hits and you get that rotation level guy that fills in on the wing, which is the most valuable position that you can get those undrafted guys. We're in complete agreement there. Uh, again, I don't believe in the a shooting regression for him. I think he's going to be a really good shooter at the NBA. And I just love how impactful he is off ball. But I want to echo something that you just said as being important to me, which is you don't draft guys in this late round to necessarily come in and, and be a first, second, or third option, right? Once you get past the 35th to 40th pick, it's maybe a high upside swing, maybe a really long-term development drafted stash Euro guy, but it's role players, guys who can come in and make you better or has one flaw. And if they didn't have it, they'd be a little bit higher. Meyer is much more of the well-blended role player type. I think we both value that as, you know, the buzzword of the day being connective tissue, but that's where he really excels. And the next guy on this list, I have a feeling checks off a lot of those similar boxes for you. And that's the seventh player we'll talk about today, Gabe Brown from Michigan State. CJ, the floor is yours. Yeah, it's actually a little bit of a step back from Meyer. And connective tissue is the buzzword of the day whenever I'm on a podcast. It's my go-to. <laughs> but Gabe is kind of in that Josiah Jordan James mold, right? Where we're talking about not very dynamic, um, gets catch-and-shoot threes up like a maniac, like that kind of thing. Except for the fact that he is a phenomenal shooter, like 90% free th- from the free throw line. I, I don't know exactly from three, but like he's yeah, going to sh- 38 on volume. He's going to shoot the lights out of the ball at the NBA level. The, the take, like the takeaway, because at, at the end of the day, I value Josiah Jordan James higher than Gabe Brown because I don't think the connective tissue is very much there with him at all. The defense is closer to just like fine, good than it is Josiah's level. He's kind of like a, you hope he survives, but he's six, eight and can shoot the lights out kind of thing. Um, he, he isn't, he isn't a NBA plus on defense. He's probably a slightly below average, maybe average, hopefully because of his size, but guys that are six ten or six, eight, I'm sorry, guys that are six, eight and can shoot, 40% from three on volume. And when we're talking volume, we're again up over 10 um, attempts per hundred possessions. I'm going to mark him down. He's not draftable for me. I wouldn't take him top 60, but that is a two way that I would be lining up to throw because he could shoot the lights up. He can't dribble, can't do anything else. I don't know if he could attack closeouts, but he can shoot over guys for days. And I think he's going to make 38, 40% of them in the league. I'm having a difficult time with not just Gabe Brown, but other shooters that are specialty guys that are really going to have to come in and just make a living off of draining threes. Because the trend that I found a couple of years ago was 14th, 15th guy on the roster, go ahead and take a shooting specialist, get a Garrison Matthews if you can, right? Armani Brooks for Hughes, like snatch him up. There's a lot of value in that. Duncan Robinson has turned into so much more for Miami. And I bet a lot on Mitch Ballack from Creighton in the same way a year ago, right? Like just a specialty shoot, shooter can come in and do the things that you need him to do on that end. 
I'm not sure if Brown is as good of a movement shooter as a lot of those guys, which yeah. is one of the reasons why I don't necessarily value him in the same mold. But what we've seen is that that might have already be a trend that's on its way out a little bit more, that the athleticism, the length is more important, which helps Brown a little bit more in that regard and probably puts him ahead of a guy like a Johnny Juzang for me in this class where, you know, I think Juzang has a lot of positive shooting traits, but I think the length profile with standing in the corners and making threes probably translates better to where the game is continuing to head at this point in time. So um, I struggle a little bit with the eval of fit because I'm philosophically trying to dig through, Hey, what really is going to be valuable in those 12 to 15 spots on the roster. And quite frankly, if Gabe Brown earns his way onto a team in the first couple of years of his career, it's by being a 12th through 15th guy. Absolutely. And I, I want to make sure I'm clear here. I don't have Gabe. I have Gabe 40 spots below yeah. or 30 spots below, like, JJJ, like 40 spots below McCullough. I don't think he's – he's like you're talking about with Gilliard. He's a guy I would like to get on a two-way because what interests me is he is a good defender for a shooting specialist, you know? He's not a good defender for an NBA player. But for a shooting specialist, the guys that get played off the floor right away are the ones that can't guard at all. He is 6'8", and I think can hang maybe just enough that – he can prove his worth on the offensive end and maybe he can't honestly, there's a, there's a chance that he's just not versatile enough and not a good enough defender and teams are going to close out hard on him. And then what is he going to do? And he doesn't make the league, but that is the kind of bet, if you will, that I would like to take. Like, I think that Gilliard is a better basketball player than Gabe Brown, but I think if a few things fall right, Gabe Brown's top 20 percentiles are more valuable than Gilliard's. And if he hits anything below that, then it doesn't matter. You know, he's a two-way guy, pick up, like you're not keeping, you're not rostering Gabe Brown if he hits a medium out, median out, you know, just at that point, it doesn't matter. So I'm cool with taking a chance on a guy with size that could shoot at the two-way spot and just like, I don't know, see if he can defend and attack close-ups well enough to make it count. If he can, well, I think that transitions into having a little bit more of that connective tissue conversation again, right? Like pour another shot and, and tip it back because we're talking connective tissue one more time. But where where the next guy on this list really gets me excited is by being the combination of the really good on-ball defender and shooter that you look for from that typical 3 and D type of mold while having connective tissue offensive talent. And the downside is he's only six foot four. Right. He's not necessarily a true wing who's going to be able to guard fours in the NBA. But if I'm willing to bet on one guy whose competitiveness and just overall blending into a roster ends up getting him a priority two way and turning into more, it's probably going to be Lucas Williamson out of Loyola for me. Um, more I've watched him, the more I've been really, really impressed. Just a fantastic point of attack defender, physical, strong, quick, long in a lot of those ways. But all of the numbers test out incredibly well positive assist to turnover ratio 39 percent from three with an effective field goal percentage above 55 positive stock numbers for a guy who again maybe an undersized wing or a bigger combo guard solid free throw attempt rate solid three-point rate keeps the turnovers down not a high usage guy like i like all of the statistical profile that goes with what the eye test tells me which is he's going to be that guy that theme of the day 
comes in, defends from day one, and I think outplays some of his role. Not a draftable prospect for me. I would not take him in the top 60, but a priority that I would look for for training camps, for summer league, and possibly for a two-way. Are, are you a Williamson guy at all? No, um, I'm not, honestly. I I think that I'm just, yeah, I'm not. I don't think he's NBA caliber. And I've seen his name get a little bit buzzier over the last couple of weeks. So I actually dug into him a little bit and I don't see it. And I don't want to like all of the, you know, whatever disclaimers, I hope he proves me wrong. I genuinely want every one of these guys to be NBA players. I'm not going to be mad if, if Lucas Williamson is a five-time also, you know, the disclaimer. So I don't get yelled at after. I just from an evaluation point of view, I don't know if he hits MB. I do a lot of threshold analysis, right? Like BPM, you can't scout with BPM, but you can see if guys are hitting certain thresholds. And what you'd like to see is, especially for upperclassmen, I would prefer an upperclassman, best case scenario, be productive all the way through his career, just stay in college, graduate, go to the league, whatever. He was productive all the way through. Second best case scenario is he was blocked and not playing a lot of minutes early. And then he got his minutes and then blew up, you know, and then he started playing. What Lucas Williamson is in the third scenario, which is even freshman, junior or freshman, sophomore, junior year, even when he was playing minutes, he played 700 minutes, 500 minutes, 900 minutes, you know, give or take in those first three years. And he didn't hit NBA thresholds on the offensive end. I have no question about him being able to defend his position. I think you're right on there. But I don't think, I think at the guard spot, especially at 6'4", you have to do something offensively to, to make your time worth it. I think he can hit open threes, which is cool. But it's not as interesting to me when he's 6'4", and like shooting at size, most of the guards can shoot anyway. And beyond that, I don't really think he does anything on the offensive end at NBA levels. I, do, I wouldn't want the ball in his hands. Maybe he could dribble into a pull-up every now and then. I just don't think he provides value over any other guy that you could find at the shooting guard level anywhere on the offensive side of the, football, side of the floor. So he's a fine defender, um, can guard for a little bit. But, yeah, I don't know. I am especially wary when guys pop as fourth- and fifth-year seniors when they had very little production early on in their careers. And if we're just running offensive box plus minus – Freshman year, he was a 0.1. Sophomore year, he was a 2. Junior year, he's a negative 1. And even in his regular senior year, he's 2.5, which for a senior just does not hit like, hey, I'm going to be an NBA guy. So he he gets to 4 for offensive box plus minus as a super senior, which is like maybe start to scrape the threshold of could be an NBA player as a sophomore, junior. You know, like I'm just – I'm not interested. I would take about 100 guys before Lucas Williamson – and I hope he goes all pro. Yep. <laughs> well, the, the disclaimer is, is very kind. Um, my thing with Williamson is that I actually view him as an undersized wing. Um, I would not play him at the two guard and try to have him any type of creation reps either. But I think that he's strong and long enough to be able to guard threes in the NBA and in the right yeah. system, where if he is very much in that Josiah Jordan James, hey, just go stand in the corner. Like, yes, he's six foot four. But if we throw that traditional thought of you've got to be six, six or, or taller to guard a certain position on the wing and you trust that his strength and just competitiveness is going to win out there, that's the role that I see kind of working for him more than anything else. 
That's fair. I would say if I had to envision a role for him, it would have to be him hitting at that like wing spot and being a true wing defender. I don't know if he's that good of a defender um, because guys are just so big and strong in the league. You know, it's when wings are six, seven, six, eight, six, four, you have to be Marcus smart level sturdy to have that matter. And that is his path. I agree. That's his path. Um, yeah. I, I, if he were, if he had the same stat profile or six, eight, I'd be way, way, way more interested. Yeah. I just think six, four from the film, six, four feels generous. I think he's probably a little bit, I, I don't know. I, I just, I don't think he's, I don't think that the stuff that he does well matches the position that he's going to have to play because of his size. Sure. And I, and I think that there's, again, situational fit is going to matter a lot. Yeah. If you are Brooklyn and you can have Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant as your primary creators, you can get away with putting Williamson in the corners offensively yeah. and then cross match in different ways that allow him to be defender at the point of position that he needs to. I'm a firm believer that the best way to guard those long wings, the guys like Kawhi Leonard, Giannis, or Kevin Durant is to throw guys who are both strong enough at him and can undercut his dribble, right? That's why Marcus Smart is so valuable to me as an on-ball defender because he can hold his own in the post. And when he's guarding them face up, he undercuts their dribble by being a little bit smaller. Again, ideal high, high ceiling situation for Williamson is being able to come in and do that type of role. He's he's 83rd right now on my board, right? This yeah, is not uh, me sitting here and projecting like this is a guy that needs to be drafted. Like, no, but the pathway forward is one that I would say I'm really intrigued enough to make him a priority two-way guy or somebody that I just need to get in my gym for training. Yeah, and yeah. that's what this podcast is about, right? Who are the guys that we would individually bet on to outperform the draft position if they fall outside of the top 45? Yeah, and I'm, you know, there, we said at the beginning, it's a very personal flavor stuff once you get outside the top 50 in any place. I just, I, and you can't like everybody, right? You, you can't be an analyst thinking like, I, I think there's 115 NBA guys in this draft. There has to be people that you are down on to have people that you're up on. And just like a, if you told me, if you asked me what the odds were of a, super senior from the MVC with a four BPM offensive box, the box was minus. That's a, um, that's six foot four. Like how many of those guys make the NBA? I would say 1%. So if I had to bet on one of them, I would want to bet on Lucas Williams. And I think he definitely does a lot of the middle things. Well, it's just a, like a, let's call it a math bet. I, I don't think he adds up. Yep. I think that's fair. Well, let's stick with flavor of the month for kind of two final guys that we'll talk about here. Um, Pete Nance, Northwestern, 6'10", big man, shot 45% from three, very good playmaker within the system that they asked him to do, and a solid rim protector. Analytically, he tests off the page offensively. Where are you at right now with Nance? Draftable. Let's go. I, draftable, yeah. I, I Passing and size are cool. Passing and size and 45% from three is a different story. I wish that he – got them up at a little bit better volume, but he doesn't get them up bad volume. He's right at the McCuller, like six per a hundred possessions. And I don't think he's a 45%. Let me go out on a limb here. I think he's probably not a 45% three-point shooter in the NBA, but if he's a 38% three-point shooter in the NBA and he has that awesome, like, 
I love big men that can pass. Big men that can pass and protect the rim, I think, are so cool. He's mobile uh, mobile enough that he's not going to get picked on defensively. And he's another one that all of these guys are. Fit is so underrated when we're talking about these guys that because on the margins, your skills fitting the system that you're playing in is huge. But if you can get him in a movement motion offense that have guys running around him and genuinely take advantage of his passing, I think he's super draftable. Yeah, interesting. That's very, very interesting there. I, I have him kind of in the, the 70s range, so he's knocking on that door for me. Priority two-way guy, just because I, I think of him as an offensive specialist, right? He's okay mm-hmm. defensively, but the fact that he can come in and just be a really good facilitator from the top of the keys, a good three-point shooter and floor spacer when you need him to, it's a valuable piece to have on your roster. You can't run him and another bad defender as your four or five, or even another average defender. Situational fit is really huge. He's not going to be a primary defense anchorer. He's more of like that, like mobile rover. Yeah, he's not, you're right. He's not the primary paint rim defender if you don't have really, really good help around him. But just, he's, he's also not switchable, right? Like we, he's mobile enough, but I don't think that he's a yeah. guy that can switch oh. screens at all. No, no, you don't want him in any situations against guards ever. But I, I, he's, I don't know, he's fun. I would take it, I, 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 won't, I won't go crazy. I have him in my early 60s, and I think that will rise to draftable as guys start to pull out. I don't think that he's a first-round pick. I just can't help but smile watching him play. Because on the, on the offensive end, because I love big men that can put the ball on the floor, distribute, and when you add his shooting willingness and ability, accuracy to that, it makes it fun to like develop the defense, man. Like get get in the film room, and I, I don't think his body is unable to defend. I think get in the film room, prove that you can defend. He's probably never going to anchor a defense, but we're talking about a two-way late second round pick you don't usually get 610 guys that shot plus 40 percent from three and have that kind of vision that late that's a bet i would be happy to take even if maybe he's unplayable on the defensive end at the nba level perfectly possible none of these prospects are perfect but that's a bet those are the bets that i'm more comfortable can provide excess value fair all right well cj we've gone over nine guys we promised 10 and in our little makeup Good. session here going uh, going on beforehand, we had a, one name that we're in here. But I'm actually going to open it up to you and say whether yeah. you want to talk about this guy or if there's anybody else that you're really high on that we didn't get to here. Who is one, the, a 10th guy that we need to say that he would probably outperform where he either ends up getting drafted or is one of those undrafted guys that I'd be willing to bet on making the NBA? Good Lord, man. You're just putting me on the spot. I am. Um, Because I know you can handle it. That's what it comes down to. So if if I'm going to stick with, I'm going to stick with a, uh, actually I'm going to go to a center because I don't think we've talked about very many centers. And just for everyone at home, the last conversation was going to be very repeated from a a couple of the other ones we did before with um, point guard, uh, Andrew Network. So I'm going to go Marcus Bing. I think that Marcus Bingham is a guy that isn't driftable and is immediately get, should be given a two-way at the next level. I think that he – Michigan State is not a great spot for him. They ran a lot of stuff through the post. 
they didn't take advantage of his strengths. And I think he's a modern big that can step out and shoot a little bit, run rim to rim. And I really genuinely think that he can play his way into the league. This is why we put you on the spot because CJ, <laughs> you are hitting the nail on makes the diamonds. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I mean, look, there are so many guys that come into Portsmouth to all of these combines and try to make their way in and just show that they can be a little bit different than how they were deployed in college. And I think that is the biggest thing about Bingham. He does two things. Well, one, he shoots the ball incredibly well, 41 and a half percent from three this year. Uh, volume was not very high, right? Like very, very low attempt rate there from three, but there is modern shooting touch to his game. He rebounds the crap out of that thing. Super active defensively is in that modern mold of what you're looking for, for a big man, but it's the understanding of the context, right? Michigan state is just going to rim run him to death in transition and post him up and play Tom Izzo ball. And he's so much more than that. And, and I just, I'm really curious to see what he looks like two years from now. And because of that, I don't know if I, I have him just inside my top 100, but man, like I really, I really want to see how this guy looks with a couple of years of pro ball under his belt. Yeah. He he's going to end up probably when everyone comes out, I don't think he will be in my top 60, but he will definitely be in that next like 30 guys that get two weight. Or, you know, obviously two ways with the draft, but whatever. I, I think that he'll be within my top 80 for sure because he's on my board right now, 79. So he's definitely going to be in my top 80 when right. guys start pulling out. I, um, I'm not rushing to pick up guys that I think are backup bigs in two-way undrafted free agents. Same reason we talked about for the point guard. But I think there are worlds where Marcus Bingham's like the 25th 30th best starting big Dwayne Deadman, whatever, like level. I think he could be that kind of guy. Those kind of guys historically get underdrafted, climb up through undrafted free agent. And like you said, he's that modern big. I would, the 40% is whatever. The 40% mostly just shows that he can make it. You know, it, it could very well be 35%. It could be 32%. It could be 45%. He can take them a little bit. He wasn't really allowed at Michigan State. But he can make them, and I, I think that, I don't know, like I would roster him as a third big if I were a team that needed, like if I were, I wouldn't roster him as a third big if I were a contender. But if I were a developmental team, I would have no problem like throwing him on a two-way and letting him earn a roster spot. I'm cool with that. Yeah, I, I think he's a priority G League development guy for me, right? Like I'd want to get him in a system, have him play in the modern NBA, go against, quite frankly, the G League has a lot of solid big men in it. That's one position I think is is pretty solid right now in that league um, and have him take his chops and, and, and kind of learn from that year one, see what you have and move forward year two. But I would actually say, I think he's probably, if he went, if he plays in the G league next year, I think he will be one of the 10 best picks in the G league with pretty easily. I, I think that, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking about making sure I feel okay about saying this. Yeah. I think he's one of the outside of the, the like guys that are spot down there, but are actually NBA like caliber guys just getting a little bit of time. I think he's a top 10 G league big man. Yeah, like I'm thinking about him guarding Namias Keita, who played for the Reno Bighorns a lot this year. Like he's an NBA caliber big man who's playing down in the G league. I think that'd be a really interesting matchup, but something where, you know, he learns a lot from. So maybe late nineties is a little bit too low for a guy like Bingham, just because I really like his upside, but there's going to be 
a little bit more transformation that takes place to get him to that point, then I would say he's a priority two-way guy. But I definitely, I'm with you. I love the upside that's there. Yeah, I think that he's one of the, you're right on. I think he's one of the rare seniors that is not like a contenders target this guy to get him in year one, right? I don't, typically when I'm looking at the end of the draft, I'm looking for year one value. Because if you don't get on the floor year one and you're 22 years old, then it's an uphill battle. But he's a guy that, like, I actually think can kind of get it out the mud a little bit and actually build his way into being a NBA center, whether it's a third center on a route. Like, I could see him making NBA money, which is pretty cool for a two-way guy. I love it. I love it. Well, CJ, as always, you were great. It's always a pleasure having you on here, seeing the Expos hat, talking hoops. <laughs> what a fantastic day. Before we get you out of here, let the people know, where can they find you? What do you have going on? What should we be on the lookout for from CJ Marchesani? Sure. So you can follow me at CJ Marchesani. I keep it nice and easy. Um, almost no work coming out anytime soon because I have been swamped with a little bit of the like behind closed doors consulting stuff, um, which is super fun and leaves me no time to do any of the cool outward stuff that I like to do, but hopefully I'll be doing a lot of Twitter scouting, definitely talking up my guys, a lot of podcast appearances this time of year. And um, thank you for having me on. Always a pleasure. Uh, Hopefully I'll be the first four time guest too. Let's, let's make sure we keep that tradition up. We got to get you on here at least once before draft night. Uh, Again, thank you so much for coming and joining us. Thank you all for watching along, listening along, however you get your podcasts. Make sure you leave a comment for us, like, subscribe to us on YouTube, all that details. Make sure you get us out there. And our final reminder to hashtag ban the take foul.